stand together for the reading of God's Word as we can continue forward in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at verses 43 through 47. The Thriving Church, uh, part two, is the title of this message. I'll read from verse 37 of chapter 2 into verse 10 of chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need." So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. About this section of scripture, Robert Hawker wrote, 3,000 souls savingly converted on the spot to the knowledge and the love of Jesus. What a specimen in the first fruits of the Holy Ghost descending of what in the after harvest the Lord, the Spirit, would gather in to the church of God. And behold, what continued evidences followed to the completeness of the work. A steadfast continuing in doctrine 
and a continued observance of ordinances. And while those who received the Holy Ghost in His gifts and graces received all that was needful to their private sanctification, the apostles received the power of working miracles in proof of their public ministry. A holy fear came upon all the beholders. The most unbounded charity break out amongst all the faithful. The temple or private house, the public assembly or the private meeting, all resounded with the adorable name of Jesus. And so much of God appeared in all the deportment of those holy men at this most blessed season that it was one continued festival And Jehovah in his threefold character of person gave such testimony to the word of his grace that daily the Lord called his own from darkness to light and from the power of sin and Satan unto the living God. Oh, blessed Pentecost of a blessed God. Lord, grant in this latter day of thy church a renewed Pentecost to manifest thy glory. Do we not desire to see similar things occurring in our midst as his people? Do we not see our own deficiencies as we look at the health of this thriving newborn church? Do we not long to see the work of God's spirit in the people around us in our community the way we see here in this text? So we can, I hope, join with Hawker in this prayer to God. It would be so in our day as well. Ten days after the Lord Jesus ascended to God's right hand, from that throne, the Lord Jesus Christ poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people on Pentecost Day, which I think was most likely A.D. 30, beginning the baptism of the entire world. The first fruit of this spirit baptism was the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom accompanied by the miraculous gift of suddenly speaking in foreign languages. Then, the people being curious, Peter answers their question with a sermon. After that, 3,000 souls were added to their number. He tells them, this is what has been foretold. What you are seeing is being done by Jesus Christ, the one you crucified. And he laid out the conviction upon them and God convicted their hearts and they were cut to the souls. And 3,000 were added to their, to their number that day. The Lord Jesus goes on from there continuing to pour out His Holy Spirit. The works that we see, the things that we see occurring after those 3,000 come in are not because of human effort. They're because of the continued outpouring of God's Spirit. He's doing this, and we see this happening, and it's a beautiful thing. This newborn church continuing to be empowered by the one who gave it life. And so what happens? The people diligently and joyfully walk in the means of grace, as we saw last week in verse 42. The Lord Jesus shows them, walks them into the ways that they can continue to feast upon him, the ways they can continue to know him, and to be near to Him. The four spirit grace marks of the thriving church we looked at last week. There's this steadfast continuation of all four of these things blended together by the Spirit of God. The apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, 
and in the prayers of the people. Now this week, as we look at verses 43 to 47, we'll see the continuing blossoming of the flower of Christ's grace upon His people and how the beautiful aroma of God's church impacts the world around them. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit of God is poured out from the throne of grace upon His people and upon the surrounding world. What happens when the people of God come to life? What happens when the people of God continue steadfastly in the means of grace, grace, diligently going to the Word of God, diligently worshiping Him together as His people in the prayers and in the Lord's Supper and in the songs, diligently continuing steadfastly in the fellowship of the people of God. All of this wrought by the Spirit, not man-made. All of this because Christ is living in us and through us. What happens? Well, in today's text, we see the widespread fear of God comes upon everyone. We see the demonstrated power of God through these miracles. And we see the beautiful community of God's people dwelling together in these special ways that we'll see. And from that, we see God granting not only fear upon the people, but favor with all the people and even unto daily church growth. There were no billboards. There were no fog machines. There were no great and charismatic tent meetings. What we see is the life of a healthy church and God using it to transform the world. So what happens first? The widespread fear of God. The text says, then fear came upon every soul. Fear, this Greek word is the root for phobia, uh, the word that we all have heard about, fear. And it means fear, dread, and terror. It also means reverence and respect. So the first thing that we see described to us by Luke, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is the widespread fear of God amongst all the people who are impacted by the presence of God's church in Jerusalem. This is a reverence experienced not only by those within the church, this great awe of God, but also a great dread felt by those who are outside the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is working in the hearts of even unbelievers to make them afraid to get in the way of his church, afraid to tamper with his people and what he is doing in them. This fear is heightened by the signs and wonders mentioned next in this verse, but it appears that the dread itself came upon every soul, even apart from observing the signs and wonders. Something about this community God made them see it, and God made them afraid. Matthew Henry says, The common people stood in awe of them as Herod feared John. Though they had nothing of external pomp to command external respect, as the scribes' long robes gave them the greetings in the marketplaces, yet they had abundance of spiritual gifts that were truly honorable, which possessed men with an inward reverence for them. Fear came upon every soul. The souls of people were strangely influenced by their awful preaching and living. Of course, awful at that time means awesome, full of awe the way they lived. Take note that this is a gift of Christ to his church. It is worth noting that from an earthly perspective, these people, 
this church had every reason to be terrified while the unbelievers had every reason to, be, to fearlessly look down upon this upstart community. Think about it. The little church is surrounded by the power of the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and Romans had already demonstrated their power and their will to kill Jesus and scatter his followers. Not even 50, a little more than 50 days earlier. From their perspective, it should have seemed easy enough to kill the apostles and scatter their followers. But instead, Christ our Lord, in his grace and power, puts the dread of God upon the worldly souls while his people grow in reverence and in awe toward him. See, God does the unexpected. The fear and the dread should have been upon the people of God in that context from a worldly perspective. They went right back into Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. Calvin says, He signifieth unto us that the show and sight of the church was such that it made others afraid which did not consent unto its doctrine. And that was done for the preserving and furthering of the church. The Jews would never have suffered the church of Christ to stand one minute of an hour unless the Lord had restrained them with fear as with a bridle. Next, we see the demonstrated power of God. The text says many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Just like Christ did mighty miracles before the eyes of the people, so also his apostles are granted this same power in and through them. The same spirit of power poured out upon Christ now continues to be poured out upon his apostles. Remember, we talked about this. Christ was the perfect man and had perfect faith and he received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in and through him and carried out miracles using the same power that is given to the apostles. The power of the Holy Spirit of God. These mighty miracles would have served as tokens of proof to the people of the truth of the gospel of the kingdom being preached by Peter and the the apostles. So one of the main purposes of this demonstrated power of God was to testify to the truth of what was being preached to them. Henry says, Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles of divers sorts, which confirmed their doctrine and incontestably proved that it was from God. Also, these miracles would have greatly contributed to the dread in the hearts of the people of Jerusalem. God has done this kind of heart-melting before. Recall Rahab's words to the two spies who came to Jericho. Now before they they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Calvin says, the miracles served to make them afraid, together with other works of God, although this was not the only reason, but one of many, why they were afraid to set themselves against God. Whence we gather that they are not only profitable, 
for this to bring men to God, but also to make the wicked somewhat more gentle and that they may tame their furiousness. Pharaoh was a man of desperate stubbornness, and yet we see how miracles do sometimes pierce his obstinate heart. So there's power on display. There's fear, even dread, in the hearts of the observers. And there's growing reverence and awe in the hearts of God's people. Next we see the beautiful community of God's people. The text says, Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. Let the picture of this community of believers settle in your mind, please. Luke is taking us into the life of the church. I think we can look at this section in this way with this question. What is the inward state and the outward behavior of the church that is walking in the means of grace and thereby growing in reverence for God? What happens within them and what behavior flows out of them as a result of this? Let's look at the inward state first. Verse 46a, the first half says, continuing daily with one accord. The same phrase has been used twice already by Luke to describe God's people. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, this was said, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There's around 120 people there. God has brought them to one accord. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, this same chapter we're in now, when they of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So this is something that's not just a one-time thing about these people. This thriving church has this as a part of who they are at all times. This fruit of reverence for God, this fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of the diligent use of the means of grace brings us into one mind. Luke will use this word nine more times in the book of Acts. Eleven of the twelve New Testament uses of this word are in the book of Acts. Paul uses it one time. It's very helpful in Romans chapter 15. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this one-mindedness that Luke is referencing? What is this one, of, one accord? I've mentioned it from the pulpit before as we went through the prior verses. We'll look at it again. With the beginning in Acts, Acts chapter 1 amongst the approximately 120 original followers of Jesus, who are these people? These are those who had been instructed in the kingdom of God by Christ for 40 days after his resurrection. So we can say that this one accord that they shared, this one-mindedness, came from having the mind of Christ regarding his kingdom. They were not of one mind on the night of the Last Supper. They were not of one mind when they were scattered. 
They came to one mind after his resurrection through his instruction in the kingdom of God. So by God's grace, they not only received it, but they continue with the mind of Christ that was delivered to them after his resurrection. They continue in that through the means of grace. So what mind were they brought to? Essentially, here it is. Luke chapter 22, verses 44 through 48. Spoken to them after his resurrection. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you which I was, while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. This summarizes their one mind. This is what was on their mind. This was what was in their heart. That everything that their Savior had taught them that they didn't understand, they had come to understand. And it was boiled down that it was necessary for the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, to suffer upon the cross and take the sins of the world upon Himself so that His people could be delivered. And it was necessary for Him to rise from the dead the third day and they saw Him. They ate with Him. Peter swam really fast to go see Him on the shore of Lake Tiberias and other wonderful stories after His resurrection. And they are of one mind and one heart that this man was perfect and that He died for the sins of His people and that He came back from the dead and that this was necessary and that through Him repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. They were captured with His vision for the world and, and, they, and you are the witnesses of these things and they knew that they would be doing it together. They were of one accord. That's what it meant. They knew Christ, who He was. They understood his goal for the globe, for them, his people, and they were caught up in it together. Gripped by him and his kingdom. Next, what else was going on inside the people of God? Verse 46c speaks of them having gladness and simplicity of heart. Gladness and simplicity of heart. Their heart is being described. The heart of the thriving church is being described. Before, we see their mind. Their mind is fixed on the truth of who Christ is and His mission, His glory, His kingdom. And their hearts have a certain disposition as a result of knowing who He is and what they are to be about. And it's called this, gladness and simplicity of heart. Not only do they continue with one accord having His mind together, but also they are sharing in the heart of Christ together. From whence do they get this gladness? From whence does this sincerity or simplicity flow? From mankind? No. From God's right hand? Yes. From Christ Himself? Yes. What is this gladness? It is exultation. Listen now. It is extreme joy. It is gladness. Now, about Jesus, this word is used to describe Him as the gladdest of the glad, the exceedingly joyfulest of the joyful, the most exulting of all those who exult. This is our Lord. 
Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9 says, but to the Son, He says, and by the way, this text I chose here, not considering what we had in Christian Instruction Hour this morning, but I do think it's beautiful to see the providence here. So about Jesus in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, we read these words. But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. How is Jesus right now and forever at God's right hand? He is the gladdest of the glad. Nothing can discourage Jesus. Nothing can disappoint Jesus. And do you know what? His heart can be your heart. That's what we see here in these people. These people have the heart of Christ. They have this great and exceeding gladness. No person has ever had more gladness and extreme joy than Christ our Lord then, since then, now, and forever has at His Father's right hand, Psalm 16, 10 and 11, about Jesus. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where's Jesus? At God's right hand. What is Jesus experiencing? The fullness of joy. The pleasures forevermore. Why is this thriving church filled with a glad heart? Because this thriving church is not just in one accord, one mind with one another. They have Christ's mind. But they're not just even glad with one another. They're experiencing the gladness of the crucified, risen Savior who has been exalted to His Father's right hand, who has completed His mission. The Scriptures tell us it's a different word for joy. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, it was for the joy set before Him that Jesus Christ endured the cross. What joy? This joy. The joy of His resurrection. The joy of His vindication. The joy of being at His Father's right hand. And the joy that He shares with His people, including you and me, if we will have it. We will have it. See, because we tend to think our own thoughts. We tend to think our own beliefs into existence instead of receiving Christ's mind. We, we, we tend to have our own idea of the gospel or our own idea of the kingdom. Or we think upon ourselves instead of upon him. And, and our hearts love things besides him. We, we're glad in so many other things other than him. But will we, if we will have his mind and his heart, we can be like this thriving church. What about this idea of simplicity of heart? You know, it's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. This Greek word is used once. So you can't go searching through the scriptures to find out what it means. You can look at word roots, but it's still a little bit uncertain when you're just looking at word roots. But the, the meaning of the word is known in its singleness, its simplicity. So what we're getting at here is that their hearts are not divided. They share in Christ's gladness. They rest in Christ's love. And they are sincere in their desire to do His will together. It gets to sincerity. This is the purity of heart mentioned by Christ in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So this is a heart set fully upon Christ and His ways. Not divided not having other loves, not having other attentions that compete with Jesus. And it goes along with gladness. 
I want us to note that gladness and simplicity, this sincerity and this joy, they travel together in the heart. You cannot have one without the other. Can a heart be joyful if it is divided and focused upon so many distractions and worries? No. Can a heart be sincere and steady in love and devotion to Christ apart from sharing in Christ's gladness the strengthening that we need? You know, joy is our strength. Rejoicing is an encouraging work, an edifying work that God does in us to keep us, to hold us steady in sincerity. Also note this gladness and simplicity of heart are not constrained within the heart. Kind of moving ahead a little bit to the next section. Um, But I do want us to see that they show up in real life, especially during the times when they ate together. Because the text says they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So the gladness and simplicity of heart is certainly not limited to when they ate their food together. But it was most notable at that time. They were joyful in one another's presence. The sincerity of their love for Christ and one another was on display. This was not a group of scheming people who had other motives and who were just purely devoted to elevating themselves the use of religion or anything like that. God had brought these 120 love to where they just loved Christ and His ways, His person, and His kingdom. Now, what is the outward behavior that flows from having the mind and heart of Christ together as a people? If these people of God were united in Christ's mind, have we established that? And if they also were united with Christ's heart inwardly, mind and heart of Christ, then surely we can say they are united together as the hands of Christ in their outward expression. The body of Christ is on display. They're continuing to do what Christ did while he was still with them. This is nothing new. The people of Jerusalem have seen this kind of behavior before. It's continuing the work of Christ. Verse 44a. What's the first outward behavior that we see of a thriving church? Now all who believed were together. Note that they didn't divide into separate denominations. All who believed, without exception, remained together. Now there certainly would have, could have been some, probably were some language problems and the gift of tongues was solving that But there may have been some different meetings taking place as a result of the language issues that were in place. But that did not divide them as a people, as a church. They were still considered as one church, as together. Matthew Poole puts it this way, all that believed were together, not that they lived together in one house or street, but that they met, and that frequently, together in the holy exercises of their religion and that manner of some which St. Paul speaks of later in Hebrews 10.25 to forsake the assembling of themselves together was a sin not yet known in the church. So the first outward display that we see listed for us the inward heart and mind of Christ expresses itself the first thing we see is togetherness of the church. They want to be with one another. 
They like to be together. They enjoy one another's presence. They enjoy what God is doing in their midst. They find more of Christ in one another's midst. They find the fulfillment of the mission that they've been given is taking place as they are together in the community. What happens next? Verses 44b and 45 tell us another beautiful example of this community is not only that they were together and they enjoyed one another, they loved each other as a family, but going on like a family, they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This is a foretaste of heaven. If you look around, what you see here right now today, you've got Clark's, You've got the Williners, you've got the Maddoxes, you've got different families here. That's not who we are eternally. Who we are eternally is children of God. Now if you look around again, what you will see is siblings in Christ. Eternal siblings in Christ. That's what we are with one another. We are the family of God forever and ever. Now, you know, if any of my kids ever needed food or clothing, you think I might give it to them? Siblings, do you think if you saw anybody, one of your siblings needing food or clothing, you think you might give it to them? This is what's happening here. They're experiencing the familial love of the family of God that comes upon us when we walk in His heart and His mind. The love and the devotion that we have for one another. See, the church at that time and place, they were all together. We were told that already. And we know they were not divided up by economic class. As I've said already, it's likely there was some language difficulties that were almost entirely overcome in terms of getting the message out through the gift of tongues. But there may have been some practical limitations that persisted. But they were not separated by economic class. That body of believers at that time that were all together, they all enjoyed each other, included rich and poor together. Sharing life together. And so as mealtimes would approach, the food needs of the poor, those who had need for food, became apparent. And as days went by, the unchanged clothing of the poor also became apparent. These true needs of the poor in their midst, members of the body, became apparent to them. And the body of Christ responded, it seems, note this, voluntarily, brothers and sisters, by rising up the members of the church, not by some act of the leadership. The people rose up to meet the need of the moment. The initiative of the body of Christ shows forth when the people are all together having and sharing the mind and heart of Christ. That's the key principle that we see here. When we share the mind of Christ together, when we share the heart of Christ together, There will be life in the body, choreographed, spirit-wrought life in the body where members take care of one another. And the church leaders don't need to say anything about it. And the members don't look to the leaders to tell them what to do. It just gets taken care of. And we have the diaconate and we have church leadership and we all work together in these things. It is true. But people don't sit around waiting to be told what to do. They meet one another's needs. Matthew Henry describes it this way. They raised a fund for charity. That's what he calls it. They sold their possessions and goods. Some sold their lands and houses. Others their stocks and the furniture of their houses and parted the money to the brethren as every man had need. 
This was to destroy not property, but selfishness. Herein probably they had an eye to the command which Christ gave to the rich man as a test of his sincerity. Sell that thou hast and give to the poor. Not that this was intended for an example to be a constant binding rule, as if all Christians in all places and ages were bound to sell their estates and give away the money in charity. For St. Paul's epistle, epistles after this often speak of the distinction of rich and poor. And Christ hath said that the poor we always have with us and shall have, and the rich must be always doing them good out of the rents, issues, and profits of their estates, which they disable themselves to do if they sell them all and give them all away at once. Now, it's necessary for us to point out that some, has fool, some have foolishly and wrongly attempted to use these verses to claim that Christianity teaches socialism or communism. Some have claimed that this text supports the idea of certain political governmental approaches called socialism or communism. And I hope you can see easily that this is pure nonsense. First of all, nowhere in this text is the state given the power to take from the rich in order to give to the poor. There's no mention of the state at all in this text. This event occurs in the midst, also note, of multiple extraordinary circumstances, and the body of Christ responds with extraordinary generosity. Matthew Henry says, puts it this way, here the case was extraordinary. He's going to give us two examples of what was extraordinary about this time. They were under no obligation of a divine command to do this, as appears by what Peter said to Ananias. This is later in chapter 5, verse 4. Peter says to Ananias, Was it not in thine own power? Peter references the reality of private property. Going on with Henry. But it was a very commendable instance of their raisedness above the world, their contempt of it, their assurance of another world, their love to their brethren, their compassion to the poor, and their great zeal for the encouraging of Christianity and the nursing of it in its infancy. The apostles left all to follow Christ and were to give themselves wholly to the word and prayer, and something must be done for their maintenance, so that this extraordinary liberality was like that of Israel in the wilderness towards the building of the tabernacle, which needed to be restrained. Remember God told them, okay, no more in the wilderness. Our rule is to give according as God has blessed us. Yet, in such an extraordinary case as this, those are to be praised who give beyond their power. That's from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3. Next, extraordinary part of this situation. They were, Matthew Henry, they were Jews that did this, and those who believed Christ must believe that the Jewish nation would shortly be destroyed, and an end put to the possession of estates and goods within it. And in the belief of this, they sold them for the present service of Christ and His church. If you had property in Jerusalem, it was going to be destroyed. For sure. And they knew this. And so they saw the need, and plus they knew that they're, they were probably already thinking about selling their stuff in Jerusalem after they heard Luke 21 and believed it. So that is another part of this extraordinary situation. So what a beautiful sight. They're together with one another. They're selling their stuff. 
so that any of the poor in their midst had food and clothing and shelter. They were a family. They were looking after one another. And this wasn't forced upon them by the state or by the church leaders. This is what they did because they had the mind and the heart of Christ overflowing in them and through them to one another. Would you let your little one go hungry or without clothing? Would you let your spouse go without food or tender care? This is the level of tenderness and care and compassion that they had for one another. And this is what happens in a healthy church, in a thriving church. This is what happens. Next, what do we see? Verse 46. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Some of this we've already looked at in terms of the internal action of the Spirit. But now we'll look at this text to see outwardly what's happening. Note again that their inward heart and mind impacts their outward actions. We are not Gnostics. There is an inexorable connection between who you are on the inside and what you do on the outside. And this is revealed to us in today's text. So first, they are in the temple. Let that sink in. They're not in some dark corner somewhere. They're not with the Essenes out in the wilderness. Where where are they? They're in the temple. Just a little over 50 days earlier, Christ had been executed on a Roman cross, humiliated in this very city. Now, people have a short memory, but not that short. And they are openly proclaiming He is alive in that city. No, He's not dead. The guy who was on the cross, no. That man, no. He's not dead. He's not in the grave. In fact, He ascended into heaven after He came back from the dead and He is your Lord and your Christ and you killed Him and you need to repent and love Him and serve Him. It's quite a message that they're proclaiming right in the midst of that same city. And they're telling the Jews, you're guilty of His murder. Jesus never said anything quite that convicting to the Jews. He told them that they'd murdered all the prophets before and all their blood would come on that generation. That was pretty convicting. But they tell the Jews, you crucified your Messiah, the prophet of prophets. Where are they doing this? Somewhere they can run away really fast? Nope. In the temple. So I want us to see that having the heart and mind of Christ not only gives us this great tenderness and love and family care for one another. And we want to be together, and we want to look after each other, we want to know each other's needs, and we want to help each other. But something else happens. It gives us Christ's courage. It gives us His boldness to be right in the midst of the battlefield proclaiming the gospel. They went to the most public place, and they lived out the Christian life And they spoke aloud the kingdom of God as they had been instructed by Jesus Christ. Matthew Poole says, In the temple, in the court and porches of the temple, whither the people did use to resort at the time of the morning and evening sacrifice and prayers, that by means of the great concourse at such times, they might have the better opportunity to preach the gospel amongst them, casting that net where they found most fish. And this isn't pure speculation because we'll see in chapter 3 that Peter and John, as we've already read, where were they going? To the temple. When? At the hour of prayer. And that's when all the people were there. So they didn't go just to the temple. They went to the temple when it was crowded with people to love on them, to bring the gospel of Christ to them. 
What else? They are breaking bread from house to house. So they're together. They're looking after one another. They're going to the public place of prayer. They're bringing the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel life into the midst of the public square in Jerusalem. And they're going out into the neighborhoods where they all live. And they're breaking bread together from house to house. So when they weren't in the temple area praying and preaching and serving one another and enjoying the fellowship with one another together, they were living life together from house to house in the neighborhoods, down the alleyways, down the streets, left turn, right turn, go up the stairs. They were, they were like ants in the midst of the city, going throughout that city to love one another and to share the Lord's Supper together. Breaking bread, as we've already discussed, is very, very likely a direct reference to the Lord's Supper. So they were sharing the bread and the wine together. They were remembering what Jesus had told them on that last supper night, some 50-ish days earlier when he was still alive, the night they fought with one another, and he, he broke the bread and he said, the new covenant. And he gave them the institution of the Lord's Supper. And they got that. And they were doing that. They were breaking the bread. They were drinking the wine together. Remembering his death. Remembering his betrayal. Remembering that he went to the cross and shed his blood for their sins. And rejoicing in his resurrection together. And they were doing it from house to house throughout that city. Matthew Poole says, not only celebrating the Eucharist, but their love feasts, which they usually had at that time. 1 Corinthians 11, 21 and 22. From house to house, now here, now there, as they could conveniently. The rich are also entertaining their poorer brethren at their tables. So this is a beautiful picture. They've got these dwelling places they can go to that are close to their place of prayer. And so their life is this kind of back and forth thing right before the eyes of all the people of the city. What if we owned 50 houses right around this church? What if every church owned 50 to 100 houses right around that church? What if there was the life of the church like that before the eyes of the people again today? What if we had businesses in downtown Edgefield and the life of the church was in and out, organic, like what we see here? See, we live in a fragmented world that has undone the economic structure that occurs when Christ's heart and Christ's mind and Christ's hands are at the heart of things. What happens next? They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So we've talked about this already. Basically, what we see here is that all of life is in view. There's, there's not any limitations on where the grace of God is being revealed in this beautiful community. They're in the temple. They're house to house enjoying the Lord's Supper. They're eating their food together with great joy, exceeding joy in Christ and deepest sincerity of love towards Christ. This is a beautiful community of over 3,000 people of different languages who've been brought into this kind of almost immediate, beautiful community. Let that sink in. See what God can do when He chooses to bring His people together and show the world the glory and the power of the gospel. Poole says, they did it their, eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. If the former words be understood of the Lord's Supper, then these words speak the great spiritual strength cheer and comfort that they got by it. If we understand them of the ordinary meats which they willingly bestowed one upon another, the rich were more than recompensed with inward peace and satisfaction 
for what they gave unto their poor brethren. So the poor weren't too proud to receive and, and the rich didn't get proud because they gave. They, they saw Christ as the source of all good and everything they had they knew was from God and they were family members sharing it together and their hearts were glad and their minds were focused on Christ and his work. Now, <clears throat> the future was coming though, right? They knew that, that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and that, that the whole nation of Israel was going to be destroyed. And they knew they were supposed to be Christ's witnesses starting in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. So they, they had to have had some uncertainty. I wonder what comes next. But you know what? That uncertainty didn't keep them from enjoying the moment and living out the Christian life that God called them to live. The fear of the Jews and of the Gentiles who had so cruelly beaten and mocked and killed their precious Lord, that didn't distract them from, from being able to live out and enjoy what they were called to either. Think about what was going on inside these people. Have we faced anything in our world comparable to what they faced? I mean, there's, there's bits and pieces of it. We haven't. But are we like them? I think we're not. I think we tend to be not of the mind of Christ, not with Christ's heart. I think we tend to be thinking about ourselves because of our own pride and you know, worried about things and our heart being motivated by other, by other things because of not knowing and loving Christ. What's the next thing that we see outwardly in this community? It's two words in the English. Praising God. What is on your lips? Brothers, sisters, what is on your lips? Now if you look back through this section... When this community is described in these verses, unless I'm missing something, this is the only description of the words they spoke. Take a look, take a look back at the verse and see. See if I got it right. The only description <clears throat> of the words that they were speaking. The description of their speech comes to us in two words. Praising God. This description of God's people infuses all that we have seen so far and all that comes after, not only here, but in the remainder of the book of Acts. In the temple, praising God. House to house, praising God. Lord's Supper, praising God. Eating food together, praising God. With one accord, praising God. Under the awe of God, praising God. In the midst of mighty miracles, praising God. When selling goods to give to the poor, praising God. When receiving goods because you're poor, praising God. All together, when they're enjoying one another, you know what comes next. Praising God. Having favor with all the people, praising God. In the midst of church growth, praising God. Now this one's not in this text. But it's in Acts 5.41. After suffering shame for the name of Christ, praising God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not me. Is this you? Does, can those two words be used to describe every word that comes out of your mouth? Yes. <laughs> Matthew Henry says, They abounded in thanksgiving. They were continually praising God. This should have a part in every prayer and not be crowded into a corner. 
those that have received the gift of the Holy Ghost will be much in praise. Is there any time in your life, brother or sister, when you cannot praise God? Where it would be wrong for you to praise God? Where it would be insincere for you to praise God? No. No, the only reason that we don't praise God is because we are in sin. Is because we don't have the faith to see God in the midst of every situation. If we see Christ like these people saw Christ, if we have His mind like they did and His heart like they did, we will praise God. And we will praise Him all the time. And people who are not like that will get sick of us. And I don't want that to happen, but that's what happens. He talks about God all the time. Is He ever going to stop? Is He ever going to quit praising God? Never. Because of the invincible life given to us in Christ, and we'll praise Him more and more with every passing day, with more and more clarity, more and more beauty, more and more strength, more and more accuracy, more and more real love, more and more each and every day as we, as we go through our lives by His grace. So don't let those two words just pass you by there. This is the mark of the healthy church. Their love for one another. They are together. Their mind and heart in the right place. Looking after one another. Enjoying being together. Not afraid to be in the midst of the culture that hates them and wants to undo them. They were in the temple. Out in the communities. Living out their gospel community together from day to day. Not just on the Lord's day. And everywhere they went. The praise of God on their lips. Let this vision that God gives us of a healthy church. Bore its way permanently into your mind and your heart. Give it to your children. Give it to your grandchildren. May it be so of us here at this church until Christ returns. What happens next? Something very surprising. Favor with all the people. Favor with all the people. Not just those who are in the community with them. These are the same ones that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And now they have their favor. Look what God can do when he chooses to baptize the world with his Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, it is not up to our enemies as to whether Christ will have his way in this earth. It is not up to their hearts or their hard minds or their, their ignorant minds or their hard hearts, which you and I used to be in. There is no power compared to the power of Jesus Christ. They are the ones who were put in dread of Christ. And they are the ones who were brought to favor, to favor the church the bride of Christ, and having favor with all the people. Isn't that amazing? What a great miracle God did. Note how when the Lord puts his dread upon the watching world, he often accompanies it with favor from this same watching world. It's interesting, isn't it? They're afraid of the church, and yet they also favor the people in the church. When Christ gives his heart and his mind and his hands to his people, he will often give favor to his people along the way of the Great Commission. Because see, this softens up the community for the presentation of the gospel. It opens doors for places that you wouldn't be able to get into otherwise. And what do you do when you go there? You're an ambassador for Christ. You bring the gospel of the kingdom into everything you see, everything you touch. You're thinking about God's ways and God's word. And you're praising God as you go about your work. You're speaking to God in your work. You're speaking of God in your work. I uh, love to look at, point to the wall where the picture is and say, look at these turbinates that God made. Isn't that an amazing structure inside your nose, in your nose? 
Or then I'll point to the inside of the lungs. And look what God did here inside the lungs. We praise Him. His praise is on our lips in everything we do. And this favor opens the doors for us to go and be these people. See, we don't have to pretend to be somebody else in order to get the favor of people. Do you see that? Lots of times think, well, we're going to keep Christianity under the radar screen. We're not going to be so obvious about it. And we'll kind of sneak into these spots and be Christians there. That's not what happened here. Think about it. That's not what happened. They were living the Christian life out in the public square. They were proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the most hostile spot on earth. And what happened? Doors opened. They were given more opportunities for the gospel. They were granted favor in that community. It is, do not be pragmatic. Do not believe the lies of the world that you have to somehow put your light under a basket in order to sneak in and let it shine. That's not how it works. Let your light shine before all the people in the world with the praises of God on your tongue everywhere you go, and you will see that He will open doors for you to take the gospel to places, to be His representative there. Bach says, the idea is that others are appreciative of this new community. The NLT says, the goodwill of all the people was upon them. A vibrant community extends itself in two directions, towards God and towards its neighbor. A veiled reference to obedience to the great commandment appears here. In sum, Luke affirms the internal fellowship, intimacy, and engagement of the community, and this positive activity is accompanied by joy and glad hearts, and their worship and praise of God are ongoing, but this is not an isolated private club or a hermetically sealed community. Their reputation with outsiders is also good. So what happens next? Church growth. So, right, there's a lot of talk about church growth and models of church growth and all these things. Books have been written on it, and some are good and some are bad. But here we have what happens when God is at work. And church growth occurs when God pours out His Spirit, His people receive His Spirit, they feast on Him through the means of grace, and they go about having heart of Christ, mind of Christ, and hands of Christ together in the world. Favor and dread will be upon the world around them, and daily we see God grows His church. So, yes, there were 3,000 at one moment, but now something different is happening. Okay? And God does it however He wants, whenever He does it. Right? Maybe there'll be 3,000 someday, all at once. But then what comes after that, here we see, is this next phase where He's adding daily. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church was alive. And what happens when something's alive? It grows. Right? So the great plants at my house, I'm looking very closely at them this time of year. I'm looking for new green leaves. That's what I want to see. And one of them, which I cut back really a lot, has some green leaves. I'm worried about it. I hope it has more. Some of the other, other ones have lots of green leaves. So what happens when there's life is there's growth. It's, it's, a, it's a rule. When there's life, there's growth. But you do know that what came first was this growth of Christian love and Christian service to one another, the health of the community came first. The Christian community. 
That preceded the favor that God gave them. It preceded church growth. Note this process too. From dread of God, imagine you're a person out there watching all this happen. First, you're afraid. You're afraid of what you're seeing. But then you also start to have this favor towards these people who are so alluring and who have this message about a crucified, resurrected, ruling Savior. You begin to have favor towards them, intrigued by them, curious to get around them. And the next thing you know, you see conversion and engrafting. A lot of this was probably happening because they were in the homes eating together. They were in the midst of the people of the community and they were together. They knew these people through their daily lives and they shared the gospel with them as they ate their food together and observed their glad and, and sincere hearts. Note this process by which many are saved. Some are saved through sermons cut to the heart right there on the spot like the 3,000. Others, it appear, are saved more through being around the people of the church, eating with them, learning from them through the context of relationship. I want us to note in this text that being saved by the Lord is also called being added to the visible church by the Lord. Please see how closely these things are brought together. Because in today's world, there's been a loss of the sense of the dignity of the visible church of the living God. And so many people believe that the Lord would just add daily those who are being saved. But that's not what the text says. It says added to the church daily those who are being saved. And even underneath this is the concept of church roles. Okay, somehow they knew there were 3,000. Somehow they knew there were 120. So this addition that's taking place is very likely being written down. And this is the most important part of the visible church in terms of the work of the church leaders is to put people on that list that should be on that list and take people off that list that should not be on that list. Uh, to say it's the most important might be a bit strong, but uh, Jesus said that uh, we want our, in, in, in essence, what we're aiming for is for the roles that we have here to match the roles in heaven. Okay, the roles that we have here to match the roles that are in heaven. The Westminster Confession, our secondary standard, puts it this way. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. And here's the part I want to emphasize. Outside of which, there, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Those are strong words. There's no ordinary possibility of salvation for those who are outside the visible church. And practically that means being a church member, having your name on church rolls, and being a part of the visible church of God. In general, that's what it means. Okay, And being an active part of a healthy church. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Some or other were daily coming in, though not so many as the first day, and they were such as should be saved. Note, those that God has designed for eternal salvation shall one time or other be effectually brought to Christ. And those that are brought to Christ are added to the church 
in a holy covenant by baptism and in holy communion by other ordinances. So, a few questions for us to consider. What about this idea of fear and dread? Looking at our world today, do you think that the people of God, that Christians today, have the dread of the world upon them or vice versa? What do you think you see? Where does the dread rest? It appears to me that in general the dread rests upon Christians. That Christians are afraid of the world. In this text we see that a church under the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit with Christ's mind and Christ's heart and Christ's hands, that what will happen is that the dread of the, of the, of the church, the dread of God, will be upon the people around them. There will be this sense that this is a sacred thing not to be trifled with. Next, do you see the awe of God, the reverence of God upon His church today? Trembling. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is this a part of your life? All the while, resting in the assurance of salvation that is ours in Christ. And yet, trembling at His glory. Falling down, if you will, in your soul as He brings Himself near to you. And He touches you with His glory. Do you think it could be true that if we do not fear God, then we will fear this world? Do you think there's a connection there? I think there is. If we do not fear God, if we do not reverence God, if the fear of God is not upon us, the fear of the world will be upon us. But if the fear of God is upon us, then the fear of the church and the fear of God, it appears, will be upon the community and the surrounding observers of the church of God. Next, Do miracles still happen today? Do miracles still happen today? Does God do miracles still today? Here's a question. Should we desire to see miracles? And if so, why? Why should we desire to see miracles? What should your attitude towards a miraculous healing of a man who cannot walk be? What should your attitude be? What should your attitude be towards someone who is lame and cannot walk from birth? God has blessed us with many things that would be called miracles through scientific advancements. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God Himself touching someone and healing them. What should be our attitude towards this? We should look to God to bring healing. And we should ask Him to do it. And we should be open to God doing this in our midst. Because He still does miracles. God still turns things upside down before our eyes. And we could tell story after story and there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that God has stopped doing miracles. Now these were called signs and wonders. And some of these things accompanied only the apostles uh, as marks of the truth of their teaching. So in that sense, when the canon closed, some sort of miraculous activity did come to a close. But not all. Not all. Let us continue to ask God to do miracles. And it appears 
is though these miracles may travel with a healthy church. That it may be a part of having the mind and the heart in the hands of Christ. We can't be demanding. We can't be pushy in our prayers with God. But let's remember that He's God. Next. And of course, the reason we should desire to see miracles is for His glory. For God to receive the glory. Next. Do you think you have Christ's mind and Christ's heart? Do you think that you're thinking His thoughts and loving what He loves? Or do you think you might prefer your own thoughts and your own worries, focusing upon yourself instead of upon Him? Your own loves, your own motives, your own desires, even perhaps the good things that He's promised to give you. That maybe these things have taken His place. Would you please pray about that and ask to have Christ's mind and Christ's heart? Because, of course, from that, we can be Christ's hands to one another. We will have His compassion, His tenderness, His lowliness, His gentleness, His care for one another. Then we will have the courage that we need to be His ambassadors everywhere we go. Are you exceedingly glad of heart at all times? That's a, who is? Can anybody actually raise their hand? But can we see that that's available to us? Through faith in Christ, as the Spirit of God dwells in us, we can be exceedingly glad at all times in any circumstance. And how can we be this way? Because Christ is generous. He shares His heart with us. Do do you believe that Christ will share His heart with you? He will. Because Christ is generous, we know that we can be glad because He is the gladdest of the glad. And He will share this with us. Next, do you think that you're pure in heart? Desiring and loving Christ and what Christ loves? Or do you think that there's fragmentation in your heart and a divided heart to where you love things more than you should? An inordinate love for something of this world. Or perhaps you love something that no one should love. You have affection and fondness for that which should be hated. You're not like Christ because Christ, we're told, loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's true for all of who He is. That's never true for us until we die. Until we die, there will be that sinful part of us that loves wickedness and hates righteousness. But as Christ is in us, do you see yourself growing in sincerity, in single-mindedness, in devotion to Christ, and the other things that are the idols of this world that He's helping minimize and take those things away from you, especially self, especially pride. He must increase. We must decrease. Do you desire to be together with the people of God? Is that something that you find a joyful idea? Eating, worshiping, ministering together, here, elsewhere. Is this, do you desire this? And if, if not, why not? And if so, what can be done to achieve these desires? Next. Are you prepared to share all things in common as needed and to meet the needs of God's people? 
And if you have need, are you prepared to express that need to the people of the church and, and, and receive assistance? We want to be a family of families. We want to be the family of God. Where are you in terms of materialism? How do you view money, possessions? Are they tools to serve Christ? Or is it something that has mastered you and become in control of your thoughts and desires? It's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Is praise of God your lifestyle? Is praise of God your lifestyle? Would people describe your mouth as a mouth that's praising God? Next, do you see the favor of the unbelievers upon you? I mean, you know, I know unbelievers, uh, and that's, that's a good thing, right? We should know unbelievers. That's the first thing. And I can say that some of them, it seems like I have their favor. Can you say that too? It, it should be something that we would want to be able to see in our lives, and the favor would hopefully be as a result of, of love and service and kindness and, and some demonstration of the goodness of Christ in our lives. Um, you know, because there's this idea that we want to celebrate the hatred of unbelievers and that if we are persecuted or mistreated, then that's proof that we're actually walking with the Lord. And, and there can be this really unbalanced approach to what we should hope for and expect, for, expect our relationship to be with those who are outside the church. Yes, we will be persecuted. Yes, we will be hated. But may it never be for anything other than just the gospel itself. Not because you're being a jerk. And then just claiming it's because we're Christians. So, as we walk in Christ's ways, it appears as though there will not only be persecution and hatred, but there will be, there will be some favor as well. Next. Is the church growing regularly? And I'm not just talking about our church, but the church in general. When you look around the world, is the church growing regularly? And when I asked the question about being together with Christians, I wasn't just asking the question about foothills. Do you enjoy being in fellowship with Christians? You know, we love presbytery, right? It's such a wonderful time with over 300 other believers in Christ being together. Do you love time with other Christians, not just here, and is the church growing, not just here, is the church growing regularly? Physical church. And finally, what is your attitude in your heart towards the visible church? Um, remembering what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about being outside of the visible church. Well, let us end this sermon with hearts of gladness, simple-mindedness, simple-mindedness, simplicity, and reach out to God and ask Him that He would achieve these things more and more in our midst. And, and not just here, but His church everywhere. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we look at this beautiful, thriving church, what You did there in Jerusalem around eighty thirty in springtime. And we, Lord, see our deficiencies in comparison. And we look to You, Lord Jesus Christ. We know that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and that you continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon your church. And so we do ask you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would continue to grow us up, to be of one accord, to have your mind, to embrace who you are and your mission for your church. And Lord, that our hearts would be all yours, that we would love you and love what you love. That we would be your hands, we would be your body in the earth, and that we would be the glad observers of the good work that you do to grow your church and to put the fear of God on the culture around us and to put the favor of your people in the minds and the hearts of the people around us. We ask all of this, Lord Jesus, for your glory, for the sake of your name, that the whole earth would sing praises to you. In Jesus' name, amen.